All right. We are moving right through the Gospel of, of Luke, slowly, but surely, definitely. And so if you have your Bibles, go ahead and open them to Luke chapter 12, as most of you probably already know. That's where we're going to uh, be this morning, and we're going to start in verse 8. Uh, if you've already looked ahead, which I hope you have, which is a, I think is a great benefit uh, to you when it comes to preparing your hearts and your minds for, for Sunday mornings, you're going to understand or need to understand that what we are going to engage today, that context, once again, is very important and that context really matters and you'll see that in just a few minutes. Context matters, yes, absolutely, but words also matter. Words also matter. The words that we use, the words that we say, the words that we write, the words that we type, the words that we text, the words that we ask Surrey to try to dictate for us, they all matter. Words matter. Communication comes through words. Right? Certainly, body language communicates a lot. Inflection, inflection communicates a lot. But words matter. If I looked at you and I said, I'm just so sad today. It's amazing how sad I am today. You would know that I wasn't very sad. Words matter in that communication. If you're married, you know that words matter and that communication matters. And sometimes communication in words that are very precise, very precise. We, we've all heard the old, um, the old phrase, a, a picture's worth a thousand words, right? We, we've heard that, and it, you know, it sounds good, and, and, and certainly there, we can understand that statement when we have certain pictures in front of us. But uh, I have to agree, though, with, um, with John MacArthur when he said uh, one time, I remember hearing him say this, that that statement should be backwards, that a word is worth a thousand pictures, that a word is worth a thousand pictures. And, and let me give you just a couple examples of that. Number one, when I say the word tree, in your mind paints a tree. Or in your mind comes a tree with certain attributes. And, and even though there's not a thousand different people in this room, we're not even close, <laughs> every one of us, I bet, has a different kind, shape of tree that we probably could come up with a thousand different pictures for the word tree, which is very simple. Try another. How about dog? We might get a little bit closer on dog. But in a sense, when you think of the word dog, it, it comes with a multitude of pictures. It comes up with hundreds of mental pictures for each of these particular things. But what if we went deeper? What if I... What if I said, picture in your mind now, let's come up with pictures for the word sovereign. Sovereign. There's a, there is a depth there. there. There is a depth in the, in, the, in the word sovereign that not even pictures or music or movies or songs or any of those things can comprehend. There is not a picture out there that can comprehend exhaustively the word sovereign, or God. MacArthur's right on this. But in our culture, a picture is worth a thousand words because everything is media-driven, right? Everything is, is media-driven. Pictures need words, and words need pictures, right? We, we need pictures to fill our minds. Earlier this week, the, the popular website and app YouTube went down for a couple hours around the world for no apparent reason. You know, it wasn't planned or anything like that. And people began to freak out thinking the apocalypse has happened. And I'm not kidding. Like, I know it's funny, but seriously, that's what people thought. In fact, the, the Philadelphia Police Department got on their Twitter feed and said, please stop calling 911 to tell us that YouTube isn't working. There's nothing we can do about that. Now, despite the deeper and sadder issues that comes to that. 
it does prove one thing, that we are media-driven and dependent. We need more pictures than we need words. We, we need to receive our words in that 24 to 30 frames per second, or else words really won't matter to us. And then, consider the words that we do receive over those pictures. That they're not meaningless most of the time, right? Unimportant. But words still matter. Not just words from from television, but in a place where now everyone is invited to share their thoughts and their opinions through social media. We write a lot of times on our social media pages as if our words do not matter or they do not have consequences to them. And that could be far from the truth. Billions and millions of tweets are are posted every day and every week without care, without care of the, the kind of words we use, much less the horrific grammar. We think that those words have no consequences, that we will be anonymous. And I dare to ask you, in a world today, can anybody be anonymous? Can anybody just go unknown? Words are powerful. Words matter. Words prove and show a a worldview. Words uh, show a, a theology behind them. Our words show our our theology behind them. Our words matter, brothers and sisters. Our words matter. And in this passage today, I think Jesus is teaching us that our words matter. The words that we say before men matter. And they matter for all eternity. Words that testify to whether we believe and acknowledge the or, or words that deny, words that will blaspheme Christ, or words that will blaspheme against the Holy Spirit, words that we speak through the Holy Spirit. Let me show you. Look at the text. Chapter 12, Luke chapter 12, verse 8. Read with me this morning. And I tell you, everyone who acknowledges me Before men, the Son of Man will also acknowledge before the angels of God. But the one who denies me before men will be denied before the angels of God. And everyone who speaks a word against the Son of Man will be forgiven. But the one who blasphemes the Holy Spirit will not be forgiven. And when they bring you before the synagogues and the rulers and the authorities, do not be anxious about how you should defend yourself or what you should say. For the Holy Spirit will teach you in that very hour what you ought to say. This is the word of the Lord. And may His Holy Spirit move in our hearts to hear and to see His holy inspired and inerrant word for His glory and our joy. Amen. When I was younger, I became very familiar with this passage. I didn't say may, may, not very familiar. I became familiar with this passage, and, and this is also in a parallel passage from, from Matthew chapter 12. And, and the way that I became familiar with this passage may be the, one of the ways that you might have become familiar with that, this passage. And, and this is what is usually quoted um, kind of toward the end of an evangel- evangelical, and I use that loosely, invitation. We've, we've heard these, these words quoted to us. Right, so, so first the process starts out uh, in, in that invitation or asking for that response. Who, who knows they're not a Christian and would like to be one? Right? And so everyone that wants to be a Christian, they'll, they would raise their hands. And then they'll say, well, pray this prayer. And they'll pray this prayer. Well, sometimes they'll say, pray it with sincerity. Right? You need that sincerity. Believing with all your heart, pray, pray this prayer. And, and then they'll, they'll ask the people who raise their hand to pray this prayer. And then you, you all know what happens next, what's said next. With all the eyes closed and no one looking around, how many of you prayed that prayer? Raise your hand. And then, you know, a few hands might go up, and then you'll hear, 
I saw more hands that said that they needed to pray more than theirs come. Come on, who's, who hasn't, who's not raising their hand? You know, you, if, you don't, if you don't raise your hand now and you don't acknowledge Jesus now, then He will deny you later. Right? And then it gets, goes on and says, all right, everyone who raised their hand, look at me. Make it public. Come forward. Now, now no one's keeping their eyes closed, right? Now, not the bash. Altar calls like that. The Lord used some of those in my life and probably yours as well to proclaim the gospel. But it doesn't make it always right. For me, I, I heard, I've heard many of those and, and I remember when, when the Lord was drawing me to himself that I got about halfway through the process and I bailed several times. I say all this because I don't, I don't think that what Jesus meant in our passage this morning is the context in which we heard this over and over again uh, told to us. Right? I, don't think it's a, I don't think it's Jesus telling us this so that during invitations we can leverage this very hard saying of Jesus. Right, this is a very hard saying of Jesus, and we can leverage this against some of the newest of believers to guilt them to do something to come up in front of the, the room. I just don't see that context here. But instead, the context that we see here, and what we talked about last week, is to his disciples in the midst of coming persecution. To the Christians who, who read this gospel for the first time, who are feeling the pressing weight of persecution upon them. By the way, going back to that little illustration I mentioned about the invitations, words matter, don't they? Words matter. So persecution is the context here. To, to not fear man, to not fear man, but instead to fear God when persecution comes. Because when the kitchen gets a little hot, to be strong. To trust and fear God, not man. And that He will strengthen you. And He will strengthen you in that time. And He will give you the hope that when you do not deny Him, He will acknowledge you. Words matter. Our words matter. Words that show our allegiance to the Lord Jesus Christ or to something else. Words that will come out of our mouth in those toughest moments. Those toughest, hardest, pressing moments of refinement. The state of our heart is revealed. Our words matter. Words matter in how we acknowledge Jesus, how we acknowledge the Holy Spirit, and acknowledge His faithfulness toward us in those pressing moments. Those moments that, we, that are most pressing in our lives that we might ever experience. So I think first Jesus is telling us to acknowledge Him. Of course, it's right there in the text in verse 8. To acknowledge Him. Jesus' disciples are to acknowledge him, to acknowledge him as the Son of God, right? To acknowledge him as in all the ways that we've seen throughout the Gospel of Luke and in, 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 in who he says he is. To acknowledge him in, in all of those ways. But the, the, the crux of that acknowledgement is, is not just before the church, but before all men in those pressing moments of persecution to acknowledge him so that we will be acknowledged or if we deny him then we will be denied before the angels of God not much exegesis is needed here I think on this verse we, we, we know what this means 
If you deny your team, you're probably going to get kicked off your team. If you acknowledge your team, you'll be pat on the back. Way to go. Way to stand for your team. But think about this passage in the context, again, of last week. What does it say? What does it say again in verse 4? I tell you, my friends, do not fear those who could kill the body and after have nothing more to say, nothing more they can do to you. But I warn you whom to fear. Fear him who is killed, has authority to cast into hell. Yes, I tell you, fear him. If you fear man and what they can do to you, especially within this context of persecution, then the, that fear will bring in much temptation to not acknowledge Christ as He is, and as He has said He is, as the Son of God before other men. So to deny Him, He will deny you before the angels of heaven. I think He uses these words, angels of heaven, because because this is to kind of incite or bring about in us thoughts of the final judgment. Before the final judgment, as, as when the angels would, would come and stand as witnesses with God. And as God judges the world. But when we look at this text, the adverse is true. If you fear God, fear Him as we saw before, You're truly in all of Him, of His rule, of His authority, of His majesty, and of His power, and His beauty, and His holiness. And you believe that Jesus is who He has said He is, and has shown Himself to be as the Son of God, then you will acknowledge Him, and when you acknowledge Jesus before other men, and in that time of judgment, you will be acknowledged before the angels of heaven. To acknowledge Jesus before others, then we will be acknowledged in heaven. What a, what a beautiful promise to those who are being persecuted. What, what a, what's something that we could pray for? Those who are being persecuted. We pray that this text would come alive in their hearts. To not fear man but to fear God. But there's something else here that we must see, which also is the central part of the Gospel, and that is Christ. We see Jesus. We sang it this morning in one of our verses. In Christ alone. In, in, in Christ alone. You see in this verse, the central piece of the Gospel is Jesus. If you miss that part of the gospel, then you do not have the gospel. You can't miss that, that, that central part. Acknowledging Jesus is believing the gospel. Not acknowledging Jesus in Christ alone, in Him alone, in His perfect work alone, is not acknowledging the gospel or acknowledging Him. Because everything is about Him It's about His work. It's about His person. And that's the center of the Gospel message. He. He Himself is the foundation. He Himself is the cornerstone. That cornerstone. And so that's the thing that we acknowledge. That foundation. That center of of life. That life that we are called to live is in Christ alone. What we confess about Him is then the criteria of either your acceptance or your rejection in the final judgment. It doesn't take much to understand this, this verse, does it? Now, this has implications for us, doesn't it? Because we don't live in a culture, and, and granted, we're not something special. This has kind of always been it just changes. We don't live in a culture, though, that's very, where this is kind of popular or politically correct. 
believing that the central message of the gospel, the only way to salvation is through Christ Jesus as He has been revealed through Scripture and Scripture alone is very unpopular. And it's even rejected by those who would call themselves Christians. According to Ligonier's new poll that they just came out with, just I think this week, which has been awesome, was uh, very timely for me, helpful. And their, their poll of the state of theology in America, it, it shows several different things. But the one that, that stuck out to me and applies here is that it said 51% of evangelicals agree. 51%. That's over half of people who call themselves an evangelical, right? Meaning they believe the gospel is what they say. They agree that God accepts the worship of all religions, including Christianity, Judaism, and Islam. That's up 3% from 2016. That's up 3% from 2016. A little more specific, and it even seems kind of backwards here. 57% of evangelicals would say that only those who trust in Jesus Christ alone as their Savior receive God's gift of eternal salvation. Now explain that one to me. How do you get 51% God accepts all worship of all religions, and then 57% say, no, Jesus is the only way of salvation? There's certainly a little bit better of a statistic there, but there is something that's being proven. Number one, people who call themselves Christians still don't know the Scriptures. And number two, Christians are jettisoning this clear teachings of the Bible. They're, they're jettisoning and, 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 and throwing overboard the teachings of Scripture because they're just not popular anymore. So many people want to teach about Jesus, that He's this great moral teacher. And the Gospel is, is about how we treat one another and take care of the orphans and the widows, and yet then ignores that He is the only way of salvation. It has nothing to do with His divinity or nothing to do with His, his Lordship. But this passage this morning, this passage where Jesus says here, if you acknowledge me, if you acknowledge me and believe and acknowledge I'm the determining factor, what you say about me is the determining factor on what will happen in eternal judgment. Jesus is claiming that he's far more than just a good teacher. He's a good teacher, yes, absolutely. But he's far more than that. He's far more than than one who speaks with power and authority. He's far more than the one who's teaching us and showing us how to live a happier and healthier life. But that he is the hinge point of salvation. The only way of salvation. And how our acceptance and our rejection with our words and our lives matter. This speaks powerfully about the uniqueness of Jesus Christ. That He is the only way of salvation. And that is what our testimony is to be. But here's the problem. A problem that we might have to overcome. Most of us have lived in this Christian culture and in this Christian culture, Christianity has, in a sense, dominated and played this, this big role in how culture is shaped. We talked about this, I think, a few weeks ago, of, of the influence of Christendom upon, uh, upon culture. And, and there has been some good to that. But what often happens, and what often tends to happen, and we've seen this throughout history, is that um, in, in order to maintain that that stature of acceptance and buy into this Christian moral ethic, um, the culture and Christianity will begin to blend together. They'll begin to blend together in, in such a way where, where it's hard to know where the culture ends and Christianity begins and vice versa. 
right? And then there becomes this, this watering down of <clears throat> in Christianity, where it's almost unrecognizable and distinct and salty. It's almost as if anybody you speak to, regardless of their life, will all say, yeah, I'm a Christian. I prayed this prayer one day. Or I went to church and my grandmother did this and is buried here and all this. There's a blending in that has is, that is taken place. Theology and distinctive Christian beliefs in that blending then are, tend to be lost, downplayed as, as no longer being as important or as sig- significant. Because it's more important that Christians have more in common with our culture so that we can reach our culture. Big fundamental doctrines like this one, the exclusivity of Christ and in, in, in the gospel get watered down. And that blending brings about this temptation. And, and that plays a huge role in how we are going to be loyal to him or not. There's other ways that it's being challenged in our culture. One that maybe wasn't seen coming, but our view of marriage, which has been challenged for for almost decades now. And to many, it's no longer a challenge. It's just what is what it is. And and now we see this challenge being on our view of gender. I didn't even know you could have a view on gender. It doesn't even make sense. And I say this to you in all seriousness because you know the trend of things in our culture. You know the trend in our own country today. And if you are going to be loyal to Jesus and His Word, how do you think that one day you are going to be viewed? We, we all know the, the recent Supreme Court case of the man in Colorado who was just trying to be faithful to his conscience of belief, which happens to line up with our Christian beliefs of marriage between man and a woman, who was taken all the way to the Supreme Court because of his hate speech. Brothers and sisters, this is the trend of our culture. We don't feel that because we live in South Georgia. But it will come. It will come where, where you will be viewed as a hater. Someone who discriminates and hates people and is completely intolerant. And people would say, well, why can't you be like other Christians? These other Christians who are trying to rescue Jesus from his view of marriage. If you say what you believe is what Jesus believes, then we are going to be seen as bigots. You will be called that. Now, we need to be careful in our hearts and in our minds as we engage those with these differing views, incorrect biblical views, that we must not prove them right and not respond with anger and hatred. Because as they are deceived and enslaved to sin, brothers and sisters, so once were we. We just happen to be good churchgoers or raised in a good family. Just as rebellious. But we're already being marginalized. You're already being labeled. And when those accusations and labels and questions come, to, come our way, whether at work or school, families, in the public, where will your allegiance be? Standing with Jesus and with the Bible or with the culture? Will you acknowledge, acknowledge him and his authority? Or will we be given in? The message of the gospel is offensive. It's always been offensive. It's what got Jesus killed. It's what got several thousands and millions of martyrs killed. It's what's still getting Christians killed. It's what may cause you to lose your job one day. It may cause you to lose 
favor with your own family. Our message is offensive and it is intolerant because it's intolerant of sin. But will we acknowledge Christ with our words that he is the only way of salvation and that no matter what other people are saying or even threatening, will we believe him? second thing he shows us is not only to acknowledging Jesus, but also acknowledging the Holy Spirit. You see it there in verse 10. Acknowledging the Holy Spirit. I want to read this one again because I think it's important for us to understand. Look at verse 10. And everyone who speaks a word against the the Son of Man will be forgiven. But the one who blasphemes against the Holy Spirit will not be forgiven. Now, a very well-known, debated verse. And what the meaning of this verse, and there's been some terrible interpretations. This is, this is referred to sometimes as the, um, the unpardonable sin, which, by the way, is not suicide, and it is not murder, but it is blasphemy against the Holy Spirit. Murder and suicide is blasphemy against the image of God, but it's not blasphemy against the Holy Spirit. So here's a, here's a baseline in understanding this verse. Jesus is telling us that there is a way that humans, man, can deliberately and sin in such a way that makes sin completely unforgivable. Now that seems hard to understand. And he calls it blasphemy against the Holy Spirit. Now, we've already established from verses 8 and 9 that if you deny Jesus, if you reject Him, you will be denied before heaven. Right? And and, and in that sense, in that final judgment, there's no forgiveness. That's not necessarily what he's talking about here. Unrepentance and unbelief is rejecting Jesus because you've rejected the only way of salvation. Now verse 10 though, not contradicting verse, verses 8 and 9, tells us, Jesus says us, that we can speak words in our life against Jesus. We can say things that in a sense blaspheme the name of Jesus. We can even reject Jesus. And yet there still can be a point in our lives where we still can receive forgiveness. So can someone reject Jesus and then later be converted to Christ? Absolutely. It's happened in the Bible. It's happened in the Bible. The, the, the two, two thieves on the cross, right? I think we, you brought it up last week. The two thieves on the cross. When they both were about, all about ready to be nailed to the cross, they all, both of them, were reviling, spewing, slanderous, accusatory, nasty, curse words toward Jesus as the crowd was, as the soldiers were. Because that was the cool thing to do. Give it to Him. But when they hung on the cross, at the 11th hour, one of, the, one of the thieves was still mocking Jesus. And the other one yells back, do you not know who this man is? We deserve what we get. But he is receiving a punishment that he doesn't deserve. And then he turns to Jesus and says, what? Remember me when you come into my kingdom, or when you come into your kingdom. So what is he saying? He's professing faith. Jesus, you are, the, you are my only salvation. You are my only hope. So here's a man that did exactly what Jesus just says. Can blaspheme, can proclaim curses toward Jesus, and yet still believe. But still believe. And, and, and then let me give you another example. How about the Apostle Paul? Remember, he was called Saul. He was, he was speaking out, back door, 
back door, someone's there. Um, he was speaking out curses against Jesus and trying to kill the, uh, the church. Trying to kill the church. And yet, Jesus saves him. And he becomes the greatest of all Christian missionaries. Writes most of the, the New Testament. One of the most influential Christian authors of the 20th century, C.S. Lewis, was himself an atheist. I don't know how you reject Jesus more, but to say he's not even, not even real. Or certainly not God, because there is no God. So you can reject Jesus and still be gloriously converted. So what then is the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit? And why is it unforgivable? Very important question, right? Because if it's, it's a very important question because this is something we need to avoid, right? Because it's very important. We want to be forgiven. So what's the role of the Holy Spirit? Um, among many things, the main purpose and role of the Holy Spirit as he works in the background, right? He works in the background of, in, in our lives, and he's been working through the, the background of even the ministry of Jesus throughout throughout the Gospel of, of, of Luke, is he is to testify to the person and work of, of Jesus Christ, to, to show and to teach that Jesus is true, that he is the Messiah, that he is the Son of the living God. That's the main purpose of the Holy Spirit. He testifies to the work of Jesus Christ. And he alone is the true Savior and the only way to salvation. So context then helps us to understand it even more. So if that's the role of the Holy Spirit, what was taking place in our passages before by the Pharisees? Remember the Pharisees? They, they rejected Jesus. They, they, they looked at Jesus and they called him a servant with Satan. That he, he miraculously healed this guy, cast out the, the demon of the guy that was, that was deaf, and they said he must serve Satan. And Jesus is speaking these words and telling us because these guys were not ignorant of the truth. They were against the truth. And they were doing anything they can to suppress the truth. To bring about disbelief in the disciples and other followers that would follow Jesus. So there's the context that helps us understand they saw right in front of them the works of the Holy Spirit. Right in front of them. And they still accused Jesus of being a follower of Satan. Or being under the power of Satan. And I think Jesus is warning us, saying, these guys are very close. Maybe some of them, maybe all of them, maybe only a few of them. Very close of blaspheming the Holy Spirit. And he's warning his disciples of the same thing. To blaspheme the Holy Spirit is to reject the obvious works of the Holy Spirit that point to the supremacy of Christ. To blaspheme the Holy Spirit is to reject the obvious works of the Holy Spirit that point to Jesus as the Christ and the supremacy of Jesus Christ as the Son of God. And to reject the Spirit is to reject the Son. And to reject these obvious things that are right in front of us is why it is so grievous and why Jesus says it is unforgivable. To treat the, whole, the works of the Holy Spirit with such triteness or flippancy, if that's even a word, because words matter, can lead a person to a horrific end with no hope. To a horrific end with no hope. And, and, and think about this. The Pharisees were religious leaders. They weren't atheists. They weren't atheists. They were religious leaders whose hearts were so hardened, so hard, and yet would reveal their rejection of the Holy Spirit. Let me, let me give you a few reasons why this is important for us to not only understand 
And to be careful to not go in that direction, of course. But let me give you a few reasons. First is, the, the Pharisees, they were completely against Jesus. But think about this. They still wanted to believe God. They, they were completely against Jesus, but they still wanted to believe God. They still wanted to believe the Bible. They still wanted to hold the Bible up, right, as being their authority. But they don't believe in Jesus. They don't accept the works of the Holy Spirit. Meaning, listen, you can have a Christless religion. You could have a Christless religion. But what Jesus is saying is, is that kind of religion is worthless. And to reject the works of the Holy Spirit has unforgivable consequences. There are some very big and prominent denominations and churches, teachers and leaders that are doing some serious theological illusions to appeal to a culture that is absolutely okay with a Christless religion. And by the way, one day they won't be. You can look at Europe. One day they won't be. But Jesus isn't interested in a worthless, the worthless words of a Christless religion. I think that's the first thing that's very important here. Another reason why this is important to understand, because there are those Christians, and maybe even people who are struggling with the idea of Christianity, who are confused by this text in the sense where they are living under condemnation and, and guilt that they might have committed this unforgivable sin. Maybe that's you. Maybe you have something in your background, a grievous sin and even a blasphemy against Jesus Christ, and now you are in fear and condemnation. Or you, maybe you know someone who's living in fear and condemnation that that is the unforgivable sin that certainly I can't be forgiven. Someone who might have, might have had an abortion, carrying such a weight that absolutely believe that they cannot be forgiven. That in this verse here, that seems to be such a, a hard text, I think there's something encouraging. Because the only unforgivable sin is the rejecting of the works of the Holy Spirit that testify to the supremacy of Christ. And if, if you are under that guilt, and if you're under that, that condemnation, or maybe you know someone who's under that guilt and under that condemnation, then clearly one of the evidences that you have not committed this particular sin is because you are worried that you have committed that particular sin. Does that make sense? If you feel that condemnation, if you feel that guilt, even though it may not be right, but just because you feel it shows that you, are not, you have not given into that sin. And that you can still be forgiven. And you don't have to carry that burden anymore. What a word of encouragement. Words of encouragement. To those who carry such a heavy load. That forgiveness is there. That forgiveness is even given to the worst of offenders. I I can tell you this. There is no... I I just can't fathom a a worse sin out there than those who, who on the cross put Jesus to death, the Son of God, and laughed and mocked and reviled Him. But what was Jesus' words on the cross? Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. Brothers and sisters, if there is still forgiveness there, then there is certainly forgiveness for us. But it requires confession and repentance. Oh, such an important word. Repentance and embracing the mercy and grace of Christ. Lastly, 
there's a promise. A promise of his faithfulness. There's this acknowledgement, in a sense, of his faithfulness. You see that in verses 11 and 12, that when we are brought before the synagogues and rulers, now we're probably not going to synagogues, but we certainly might be brought before the rulers and the authorities. And, and in that, that pressing, right, in, that, in that, that vice, we are not to be anxious. Anxious in the sense of, what do I say? How do I, how do I say it? But what a wonderful promise of His faithfulness that even in the midst of that persecution and impending suffering, that the same Holy Spirit that we're not to blaspheme, but to acknowledge the works of Christ, that the Holy Spirit is then going to work in our lives and in our hearts to give us the words, words that will matter, words to defend ourselves, in a sense, or defend the Gospel, or defend Christ, if necessary. What a wonderful promise. What a testimony of His faithfulness to us. I love that. That, that he, he doesn't just care about the end. You know, not just how we are going to respond or what's going to happen in final judgment. But He provides for us the means to persevere faithfully, doesn't He? He gives you the means through His Holy Spirit to faithfully persevere. Now, now, does this mean that we shouldn't be ready? That we can just, you know, don't have to be ready. We don't have to be ready to defend ourselves or know the Scripture in such a way where we can defend ourselves and, and, and be ready when we stand up in that, uh, in that vice? No. First Peter chapter 3, right? Starting verse 13, it says, Now, to, now who there is to harm you if you are zealous for what is good. But if you should suffer for righteousness' sake, you will be blessed. Have no fear of them, nor be troubled. Verse 15, But in your hearts honor Christ the Lord as holy, always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you. Yet do it with gentleness and respect, having a good conscience, so that when you are slandered, those who revile your good behavior in Christ may be put to shame. For it is better to suffer for doing good, if for that should God's will, than for doing evil. Think about that. Of course, we are to be ready. We should do our best to train ourselves up and be, be prepared when we, are, when we face those times of persecution or those questioning or those traps. It's one of the purposes in, in our church and in, in churches is to be discipled and to, to prepare ourselves and to prepare one another and to equip one another for those moments. But yet, this promise, this promise, again, with, with words, when we're called to give an account, when we get in those moments, to, and we're called to give an account, to give a defense of those things that we, we believe, when we speak, when we share the gospel, we are not to underestimate the power of the Holy Spirit to give you the words to say in the time that you need them. Think about Jesus. Think about the words that Jesus said when Jesus was going to be entrapped. Or when Jesus was on trial. A mockery of a any kind of judicial integrity. So when we are in those moments, we trust in the Holy Spirit. When someone may even ask us a question about what we believe, we can trust the Holy Spirit and the power of the Holy Spirit. Be prepared, yes, but trust in the power of the Holy Spirit. And I think that those moments are coming closer and closer. You see, all of us must decide whether or not we will acknowledge Christ. 
With our words, do we acknowledge that Jesus is the central part of the gospel? That he is the only way of salvation? The acknowledgement of the work of the Holy Spirit in your life and in the church to exalt Christ, do we acknowledge that? Can you see the work of Christ in us? And in our church? And when you must acknowledge him, do you believe that he will do so through the power of the Holy Spirit? And he will give us the words and the testimony to speak boldly to acknowledge him. Do you see how this, this passage kind of comes full circle? That, it, that it's coming full circle? That, that the means of all of our strength the means of our perseverance in such hard persecution is Christ. Our, our goal at the end, our reward at the end is Christ. It's all of Christ. Our words of acknowledging Him, our beliefs, our faith is all in Christ. The cornerstone of everything. It come, it's come full circle. Fearing God and not fearing man. Because remember, they can only kill the body. But when we acknowledge Jesus Christ as the Son of God, the only way of salvation, remember that He will acknowledge you where it really matters. In heaven. Basic application. Be bold. Don't fear. Walk humbly. And know that you've been forgiven. And when you can, often speak of the good news. Often speak of the good news. Paul said, For I am not ashamed of the gospel. For it is the power of God unto the salvation to the Jew first and also to the Greek. Let's pray. Again, Lord, thank you for your word. Show us how we are to respond this morning together to encourage one another um, in these pressing decisions that maybe we need to make in, in our hearts. Uh, our acknowledgement of Him and acknowledgement of the Spirit and acknowledgement of Your faithfulness. In Jesus' name, Amen.